Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. G'day, Tim. How are you doing? I'm good. Do you know we always do this twice? Yeah. We it's, our, it's our thing. Say g'day to each other and then we have the little music bit and then we say g'day to each other before the guest. Why wouldn't we? I don't know. Fair there's enough. No, there's no, nothing against saying hello to someone twice in a day or even in a session. It's a bit of overkill. <laughs> Probably is. Sp- speaking of excellent audio, this, <laughs> this has been good so far. <laughs> Let's do the intro because this is an amazing episode. This time around on Unforgiving 60 podcast, we've got Melissa Wu. Started competitive diving at the age of 10. Mm. She's been to multiple Olympics. Yep. She's been to four, hopefully, 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 soon to be five Commonwealth Commonwealth Games. Games. And she's been diving competitively for 16 years. Incredible. It's ridiculous. And not only just sort of rocking up to these things and you know, getting the T-shirt. She's meddling in these um, sort of world-class events uh, from the, the the sort of time she was a teenager. Well, she won uh, silver in 2006. I think that was her earliest medal from memory mm-hmm. uh, and continues to medal up to and including Tokyo 2020 where she won a bronze for the 10-metre platform. Now, here's the interesting thing. Does not like swimming, does not like cold water. <laughs> Comfortable with heights. Yeah. Probably comfortable being upside down and turning inside out, tumbling and twisting. And clearly comfortable with hard work. I mean, we're going to talk with Melissa about what training entails, the various sort of aspects of training to to dive at that sort of level. We're going to talk to her about, you know, what she sacrificed um, in terms of committing uh, to the the sport from such an early age. But we're also going to talk with her about uh, some of the mental aspects of it. And this part I find really fascinating, you know, some of the techniques she uses uh, to turn on and turn off. Because diving, you know, it's that uh, the kind of event where, you know, there, there are big gaps between when she needs to perform. And, and um, Melissa will talk about the techniques she uses to, to be able to turn on when it's needed, but but not waste that emotional energy when, when it's not. Mm. And most would have seen her on SAS Australia, the reality TV show. We'll talk about why she decided as a professional athlete to go on a reality TV show that is incredibly physically difficult. And what were her key takeaways from being on that show? Yeah, no, a fantastic chat and um, a really super impressive human, just a, amazing accomplishments and, uh, and an amazing sort of person, a lot of warmth, mm. and I, I really enjoyed the conversation we had with her. Well, let's get on with the show. Nobody knows what beauty is anymore Cos do they actually look like that? Or just really good at Photoshop, oh Lord Isn't that strange? Way. 
Well, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, with my co-host, Ben Pronk. Good morning, Tim. How are you? Uh, Very well. And via Zoom today, we have Melissa Wu, Ben. This is going to be awesome. I've got some really... Actually, they're not going to be. They're going to be lame <laughs> questions. But um, diving is something that has fascinated me, and in terms of you know how you do it, how you overcome fear, how you get that skill in the air, how you can sort of get the repetition. So I'm very interested to pick Melissa's brains on that. And what if you have an aversion to cold water? <laughs> Maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's not for you. Well, Mel, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. And I understand that you do have an aversion to cold water. I do. I am not a fan of water, and I never have been. And if you had to ask, if you had to ask me, the one thing I liked the least about diving, I would definitely tell you the getting wet part. <laughs> That's a big part of diving. How about the heights? Are you okay with heights? I'm okay with the heights. I probably like. I'm not in any rush to go any higher than ten meter, but I I think I'm used to it now. I've been doing it from a young age, yeah. so. I don't mind the height. I, I like the, the element of it. It's you know a little bit scary, a little bit exciting, and definitely hate the water part though. <laughs> so the water part's probably a pretty big part of, of <laughs> it. It would be better than the concrete <laughs> alternative. <laughs> I'm trying to think of maybe the foam pit or something. But um, so with that that sort of uh, dislike of water, what led you into to diving in the first place? Well, actually, diving is a lot more similar to gymnastics Mm. and acrobatic sports. And we actually try and, I guess, talent transfer a lot of kids into the sport from those types of sports, like gymnastics, trampolining, tumbling and that kind of thing. Uh, So for me, as a youngster, I loved flipping around the house and doing all of that kind of thing. And I did a little bit of gymnastics uh, as a um, as a kid as well I also did swimming and my my sister was in swimming and that's actually how I came to actually start diving because she was racing a lot at Sydney Olympic Park and that's where I first saw it and the thing that drew me to it was not necessarily <laughs> the water part but definitely the, the flipping off the high boards and I was just mesmerized by it and as soon as I saw it I was desperate to try and it just looked like so much fun. As you look back on that sort of inspiration, was there a, a certain moment or a certain move or a certain dive when you first saw it that just captured you and, and really drew you into it? I actually really loved it from the first session that I did. And I don't think I was, I think I had maybe a little bit of natural ability. I wasn't the most talented kid at it, but I just fell in love with the sport. And I think coming from a big family and everybody always excelling at sport, I never really, like I didn't really like swimming. I never really found the thing that was you know mine that I liked I sort of just was the tag along with my siblings at their sports Um, whereas I think when I found diving I found for the first time not just the love of the sport but also a group of people that I got on with and I just loved everything about going to training and I think that's the first time I ever really committed to something and if training got cancelled I would be really upset and, (laughs) and I was like wow that's good I finally found something that you know, I'm upset if I miss it, whereas before I would be, you know, quite happy to, to not go to swimming or other sports like that. Can we talk about family? Because you do come from a family of over, overachievers and an extended family that has incredible athletic prowess. How important has family been in your upbringing and I think at the age of 10 getting you into diving and sustaining you there? <laughs> family is everything and I think for me my family has always been you know my biggest supporters my biggest support network and I wouldn't be where I am today without them and that's been literally through every step of my journey in life in sport and they were a huge uh, reason why I got into diving and I had to sort of beg my parents a little bit in the beginning hmm. but they made it happen they got me there another kid and another sport uh, and really when when it comes down to when you 
do commit to sport and, and doing more of those hours and you take that next step, it really is a commitment from the whole family, not just the athlete because it's the parents that have to get you there and have to, you know, ride with the ups and downs of you and everything. So I'm so thankful to my parents and my mum in particular. I don't, she did, you know, a lot of the driving around when we were younger. I don't know how she did it, honestly, even to this day, I don't know how she did it. But uh, I think that a huge part of the reason I am why I am and and how I made it this far in diving is due to her. And there's a fair bit of sacrifice involved. I'm, I'm speaking from a very second-hand perspective, but my daughter, Charlie, is in year eight in high school, and one of her great mates, Ruby, who's just an amazing young lady, is um, a really uh, well, sort of nationally ranked diver at, at her age. And she is absolutely committed. She's doing um, you know, training sessions, obviously, over and above everything, a full school load, and um, is really sort of going above and beyond um, by the way, you're her absolute idol, so hey, Ruby, and um, hopefully she, she gets a chance to listen to this, but just really interested in in uh, what stage that, that sort of became, a, a, I guess, that, that really massive commitment um, in your, your diving journey. For me, it was probably the moment that I, um, I guess, got selected to go into a junior AIS program in Brisbane. I was living in, at the Gold Coast at the time and diving just in a club in the Gold Coast and then I got invited into this squad in Brisbane and for me that was a massive opportunity because they only took about four of us into that squad and it was a whole different dynamic. It was high pressure, you had to hit standards and you constantly were worried that your place in the squad wasn't safe. But at the same time, it was a massive opportunity because I got to go into this squad and then train with athletes who had just come back from the Athens Olympics. And I, mm. I think still to this day, that's been one of our most successful diving Olympics in terms of the medal tally and they literally went out the, the peak of their careers and I got to go in as a little 12-year-old and train with these amazing athletes. So for me, that was a huge turning point and, and the point where I realised this is this is my big break. I can take this opportunity and this is what I need to make it or if I don't make the most of it, then basically that's it. <laughs> There's yeah. no, nothing to fall back on. And Melissa, it sounds like you were fairly self-motivated. I mean, how much of those early years was intrinsic motivation and how much was it family and coaches and others pushing you into getting out of your comfort zone and training harder and doing things that seemingly were impossible? Uh, I think a big thing was just finding something that I loved. So I wouldn't say before diving, I was like a particularly motivated person, Mm. but I think I just hadn't found the right thing. But ever since I started diving, even when I was at that you know, very basic club level before I was actually, you know, a high level athlete, I was pretty self-motivated. And I think that once I found something that I loved, I knew I wanted to do, it was sort of easy then, I guess, just being a bit lost as a kid. And I was always a bit shy and I definitely hid behind my siblings a lot at school. And um, yeah, I think just having then something that was mine, I I just really wanted to do well. And that just kept fueling me. And then as I got better, the, the goal just became different and then the goal got bigger and the bigger the goal, the more motivated I was to achieve it. So I'm pretty lucky like that. And I come from a family of very high achievers and everybody's pretty self-motivated and driven. So I think that that helps just, that's always, I guess, the environment that I'm in. And, and if you're not doing things to better yourself and doing your best, then you're sort of just wasting everybody's time. Mm. I mean, grit equals passion plus perseverance over the years how do you maintain the passion? How do you maintain the love for the sport? 
yeah, that is that's a bit more challenging, and it definitely gets harder as you encounter more obstacles and challenges along the way. So probably a big one for me has been injury, and I think the hardest thing for me is that because I, I am always, I guess, lucky that I'm self motivated. I always have a big goal that I'm working towards. And I think the most frustrating thing is when you feel like you are motivated to achieve it, but that you then have those doubts creep in, whether, you know, you're dealing with something physically or there's another type of challenge and you start um, worrying that, you know, you're not going to be able to achieve your goals. And it's, I think, almost worse to have the motivation to do it, Mm -hmm. but then worry that you're not going to be able to actually achieve it. So I think for me, that's been a bigger challenge over the years. But I think just with experience and working hard at mindset, uh, and I think too, just the ability with, you know, if you, you learn as an athlete how to bounce back, you just sort of have to keep doing that and you have to figure out, you know, you know, you have to have a purpose and know why, what, what am I bouncing back for? What am I, why am I doing this? And I think I always, whether I realize it or not, um, sometimes it's subconsciously, I, I always know what I'm working towards and what it is that I want to achieve. So I always somehow try and find a way that I'm going to do that. And that can sometimes be mixing things up or doing things a bit differently in order to achieve that. So you, you've medalled nearly in everything, Olympic Games, World Championships, Commonwealth Games, World Cups, and it's easy to see, you know, when you medal that that gives you a little bit more drive to perhaps go to the next event and do a bit better. We talked to Harry Garside about the importance of failure and lessons taken from failure. How, how does that play into your motivation when you don't medal, when you're not on the podium? I actually think, and you don't really see it because I guess also diving doesn't get you know a huge amount of coverage, uh, but you kind of yeah always see these big events and that are on TV and and you know some of those events I've done well at and others I haven't, but there's a lot of comps that we do in between as well. So I would say that for me, you know, at the back end of my career, I've found probably a little bit more. I've had more good comps than bad comps, but definitely in the start of my career and throughout the middle. Uh, it was really tough. And I think I actually had more bad competitions and good ones in, in the middle sort of period there. And that was, um, even though it was frustrating and that kind of gets you down, I think that's a key part of the learning process, not just as an athlete, but as a person. And I think I've definitely learned a lot more from my failures. And I think that what changed was just, you know, finally finding the right person to help me and getting a good support team around me to work on mindset. And I think just having that shift in mindset from looking at, it as a failure or a mistake but changing that and thinking that this is actually my greatest opportunity to learn so the bigger mistake the bigger the opportunity then to to I guess learn from it and do something different next time and it doesn't mean that you won't make more mistakes but some of those mistakes could be you know that you are trying to do something different and you are not just rocking up doing the same thing over and over and I think I just got really tired of doing Hmm. that for so many years just working hard but at at the same time doing the same thing over and over which would then just lead to the same result uh so it's yeah it's been a bit of a journey but definitely i think that that's a huge part is mindset and changing the way that you look at things and i imagine in a sport like diving where there's a subjective element it is a judged sport it's not like a, a marathon where that's your time and that's your time um does that play into things have there been moments where you've thought that the the judging's been unfair or, you know, there's something that's out of your control that's had an impact on your success or failure? Oh, definitely. I think there's always things that are out of your control and in diving, judging is a huge one and at the end of the day you can't control that. But I think that everything, it all just depends on perspective and how you look at it. Uh, I'm pretty lucky in that, you know, judging is subjective but they usually go with me. So I'm not usually on the the bad end of that. Mm -hmm. But 
at the end of the day, I always tell myself, if if I do a dive that's for eights or nines, the judges cannot give me, you know, a four or five. If I'm doing a dive that's subpar and they're, you know, then, then they're within reason to give me low scores. So at the end of the day, even though the judging is out of my control, it's still in my control because I know if I do a good dive, there's they can't blatantly, you know, just throw out scores that, you know, are, are too low. So I do think that some things are out of your control, but also a lot of it is in your control and you just have to focus on the things that are in your control because otherwise it's just wasted energy as well. Love it. And this was one of the things that I was really keen to or itching to ask you. Um, do you know when you've nailed it? Like there have been so many times in my life where I've thought I'm killing it and then I've seen a video of me doing that action and I'm actually super lame. Um, do you know when you've you've done a dive, like are you that in tune with your body and your positioning and how it's going to look that, that you have nailed it or, or are there some times where uh, the, the sort of perspective from an external viewer is different to, to how you felt? It's actually funny because in training, you know exactly how it feels, you know, whether it's good or bad or anywhere in between and you know immediately what you have to work on and fix for the next rep. But sometimes in comp, I get so nervous when I compete that I hit the water and sometimes I actually second guess myself and I think, was I think that was good, but hang on, was it actually? like? And it, sometimes that extra adrenaline and just you've got so much invested in it that I, yeah, I just, I don't know, something happened. <laughs> I'm like, I don't actually know if that was good or not. And then you wait for the scores and then you're like, okay, no, it was okay. But <laughs> it doesn't normally happen where I, where I, it's something completely different to what I thought. But I definitely have those seconds that go through my head where I'm, I'm not sure. And you just hope for the best and hope the judges will um, give you good scores. We'll agree, yeah. And so talking about nerves, this is another thing. I mean, even just standing on the, the, sort of diving board at a, at a pool at whatever that is, three, three metres, you know, you, you've got the nerves and I guess that's unfamiliarity. But if you're moving up to, to do a dive that's right on the edge of your capability, ton of pressure, sort of Olympic finals, judges, the height, all of that sort of stuff, what techniques do you use to, to try and overcome that, that massive amount of nervous energy? So it's all about, I guess like anything, it's practice. So I guess on one hand, it's the physical practice. You do that every day, day in and day out in training. We actually, before Tokyo, because we did miss a lot of competitions because of COVID, we started practicing what we would call rounds or practice rounds. So then every Friday, I would say we did it for maybe three or four months. We did it from about March right through to August in the Olympics. Um, We basically every Friday would do between us in training this little practice comp. And even though it didn't count for anything, it was just, you know, sometimes we would do different numbers of rounds so sometimes I do it with one person and then do it with another or do it myself and we basically just try to um, mimic competition that way and then the second part of that is that we practice is um, a lot with your processes and your mindset so I use that those practice comps as a really good opportunity to practice my thought process going into comp and the things I would tell myself the little cues or or literally sometimes I would just switch off and I'd just be like it's just in training and I would just go with it so that actually when I got to comp I would refer back to how mm. I felt in training so rather than sometimes in training rather than trying to elevate myself too much I'll just do it normal and then in comp I try and bring myself more down to my training level rather than the opposite because I get quite nervous and hyped up in comp so there's different things you can do, but it's, yeah, basically a lot of it in diving comes down to mindset and in the moment on the day, you've got to really control it. And it doesn't mean you're in control the whole time. You've got to sort of bounce between the self-doubt and then bring it back and then go again and 
it's just this constant little tug of war in your head of positive and and then doubt creeping in. I, I love that that point about sort of bringing it back to something that you're familiar and comfortable with. Do you, do you have any other sort of superstitions or mantras that that help as touchstones in those high pressure moments? Uh, superstitions, I try not to have any because I know I'm quite a like I've got a bit of OCD, and I know if I go down that route, that I'll just <laughs> yep. get ridiculous about yep. it. And I'll have so many, yep. so I've, that's something I've consciously tried not to do throughout my career. But I think just um, I, I usually journal uh, leading into comp every mm. day, and sort of if there's been something that's been working for me in there, that's like a little mantra or something, or then kind of take that and build on it. And then so whatever I tell myself on comp day, it's not always the same thing. Mm. But whatever I'm telling myself as a little mantra, it's something that I've, I'm quite quite familiar with because I've been using it in my journal or I've been practicing in training. So it's never anything that I'm trying to think about something to tell yeah, myself yeah, on yeah. comp day because you never want to be in that frame of mind. You want to just have these things that automatically come to you. Uh, and it's almost just this, yeah, automatic thing that you just block the, the negative thoughts and you just like overcome them with positive thoughts. But it's, it's without thinking about it almost. No, it's hard to see sometimes because of social media and TV. But the truth we fail to realize is oh, that's not how life's meant to be. been compete, uh, thinking about competing at 10 metres off the ground <laughs> and it dawns on me that you, you've nearly got a mini event just to get to the 10 metre platform <laughs> yeah. where there is this self-doubt but there's a bit of physical exertion isn't there and probably the last thing you want when you're about to dive from 10 metres is to have an elevated heart rate. I mean <laughs> what are you doing just to regulate just back? jump in and say that Melissa probably does those 10 metres <laughs> with a lot less effort than you, you do mate. <laughs> like, so. I, I walked up the stairs from the train station today I was completely gassed (laughs) oh you must just get used to it I guess I never think about it we're just you're you're um probably too worried about going off the other end of the platform like any time up the stairs is just like extra time before you have to like Mm. face the inevitable I guess and Mm. break yourself off it does lead to to the question on training so what does your training regime look like? Not necessarily day-to-day, but what sort of skills? I mean, is there a cardio thing? There's obviously a gymnastics balance sort of thing, a strength thing, practical diving. What what fills your training calendar? So it's very diving specific. So we don't need a lot of cardio. So we don't actually do any cardio or anything. Basically, our training is broken up into like morning and afternoon sessions. So every afternoon we're in the pool doing our dives and depending on what phase of training we're in, that looks a bit different. If we're out from comp, it's, um, you know, if we're far out from comp, it's more just a lot of volume, but it's just basics and building that technique. So you'll do a lot of reps, but it's low intensity. Then as you get closer to comp, you'll do less volume, but it starts to really ramp up in terms of the difficulty of the dives that we're doing to get ready for comp. Uh, and then in the mornings, we twice a week, we do what we call dry land. So that's in a gymnastics center. And that's a lot of our gymnastics looking training. It's specific to diving, but it looks very similar. It's a lot mm-hmm. of somersaults, trampoline, foam pits, that kind of thing. We have actually like springboards that go into the foam pit as well, which is pretty fun. Mm-hmm. And then three days a week, we do gym, which is just literally in the gym with an S&T coach. And that's just training um, specific things for diving. We need a lot of core, leg strength. Uh, we need a lot of power as well mm-hmm. so 
it's all sort of geared towards that. And as you get closer to comp as well, it, it changes and it becomes just very, very specific um, to diving. And it's, it's mainly just a lot of jumping and, um, and core work, basically. And I imagine flexibility in there has got to be massive along that gymnastics line. Yeah, we basically just cover that like day to day. Every mm-hmm. session when we warm up, we do a lot of stretching. I'm as an older athlete now, I do a lot of stretching after training as well. I find that that really helps. So that's just more of like a self management thing that mm-hmm. we don't actually sort of cover as part of training, but you you do it because you, you're better off doing that <laughs> and then then not doing it, especially in my. Age. I'm just visualizing what my tuck would look like. I don't think it would be. Um, <laughs> I think be, you would you would not be killing that. <laughs> I would not be killing that. Um, what about visualization? You you touched on some of the mental techniques you use, but uh, are there any formal sort of visualization? Uh, techniques that you employ in terms of some of the more complicated moves in the air? Uh, I actually, visualization is something that I have always struggled with. I don't know why. Every time I try and picture myself doing the dive, I wipe out on my back, on my side, every which way. And I and then I start overthinking and I'm like, am I supposed to be doing this as like me doing it? Or am I supposed to be like visualizing, like watching myself doing it? And I just end up in this spiral of like thoughts that is just not conducive not to a good performance. Mm. Very unhelpful. So it's something that I personally don't do. But I'm always really interested to um, like hear what other people do. And because sometimes it works for them and a lot of people do it. And I see divers doing it, you know, in the warm up room uh, or like between dives in comp. And I'm like, wow, I like that would be cool if I could do that, but I know it's not good. Now it's not the time. <laughs> no, a little comp to try that. Um, so me, it's I try and do a little bit more, just like think about like mindfulness, being in the moment, and then switching on, switching off, um, that kind of thing. So at the end of the day, I just keep it simple in my head and have a few cues and just do that when I have to do it. And when I'm out of that, I, instead of visualizing, I just then try and occupy my mind doing something, but something different to diving. So like a little Sudoku or something like that, mm. or chatting with someone. Yeah. Mm. So outside of Sudoku, because you're not doing that, I guess, when you're on the pool, pool deck. <laughs> uh, no, between. I do. I do it really? in, in comp. I do it, yeah, between. Yeah, because some of our comps are quite long, especially the preliminary rounds. They can go to like more than three hours. So you, can, you can't switch on for three hours because it's too intense and you burn out after the second or third round, for me personally, but a lot of divers are the same. Mentally, it's just really hard to hold that level of, focus for that long and if you have like sometimes 40 minutes between your dives you don't really need to be switched on in that time so that's a key thing that you have to learn with experience is how to switch on and switch off and 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 you have to be able to do that otherwise you just you won't get through the whole comp otherwise it'll just be you'll just burn out any other techniques to being present in <laughs> the moment mindfulness techniques outside of waterproof sudoku uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think I, it's just I think being aware of it it's something that like I didn't really know about until I was working with my psychologist about it and he talks a lot about it and and I, it kind of helped me I guess with all areas of my life especially now at the point I am in my career and focusing also on things outside of sport sometimes I have a lot of different stuff going in and I try and just be thinking about whatever I'm doing in that moment at that moment and not worrying about other things it helps me compartmentalize a bit too especially in training I try not to let other things get into my head because uh, I'm at training. So at the end of the day, I'm better, I'm better off focusing on that and doing that because I can't really, it's not like I can be doing an email while I'm at training. So <laughs> I just have to be doing that. So I think that that kind of really helped and then just practicing it, then it kind of works in comp and it just translates over. So we talked a bit about um, you being on the platform, but your other events are 10 metre synchro and mixed synchro. Could we talk mm-hmm. about how you prepare as a pair? How does that teamwork look in training? 
Synchro is something that can be a little bit difficult in Australia because all of our programs, when I was younger, uh, we were all in the one training program in Brisbane and that's sort of how I grew up diving. And then that program was sort of dispersed into state institute programs instead. So now a lot of our divers are in different states. So it's a lot more difficult to get together for training and quite often we'll send synchro teams away at comps where they only time they train together is literally like the three days before once you arrive in the country that you're going to compete in so it's not really I think at, uh, in Australian diving we haven't really figured out a really good way to do that yet to to really prioritize those synchro teams uh, so I think we haven't seen the same success as what we did when I was a younger athlete but I um, I think like it's it's sort of changing slowly we're trying to get together a little bit more and COVID hasn't been that helpful for that either mm-hmm. uh, but yeah basically you just got to sort of if you don't have much time to train together, you got to basically work fast. And I think a really important part of synchro is being able to, uh, I guess, meet halfway and, and communicate well. And the quicker you can do that with somebody, the better it's going to be because especially if you don't have a lot of time to get ready, you've got to basically get on their wavelength as soon as possible. And then also then when you get to comp, that's a whole different story again with how they deal with comp and how you deal with comp, you could be polar opposite. So you need definitely people skills as well and good ability to listen and learn and, and watch what they're doing. And no names, no pack drill, but have you had synchro teams that just haven't worked because of that that personality thing over and above any skills or, or if- Oh, I haven't had any that haven't worked. There's definitely been partners that I have preferred or not preferred that at the end of the day, if you're going to dive together, you have to find a way to make it work. So you don't have to be best friends, but Definitely, if you're not, if it's, something's not working and you're not making that effort to make it work, then I personally don't think there's any point in mm. competing. Like you've got to, you've got to always make the effort, and and it's a continual effort. It's like, it's like anything. It's like being in a relationship. I guess no one just <laughs> floats through life. It's always a bit of work, and you got to work at it. But it's it's worth it if you can um, figure things out and get a good result. Now, speaking of teams, I'm fascinated by the team selection process. I've been sort of listening to a, a inside running podcast which talks a lot about athletics selection and you know there's qualifying times for things like world championships and um uh, you know common olympic games but then there's a subjectivity from athletics australia how does the selection process for say an olympic australian olympic games team uh, work within diving so i think basically across all olympic sports the olympic um selection policy has to be approved by the Australian Olympic Committee well in advance so usually it's almost like a year in advance or something I think like that so going into Olympic trials we're always really clear on what the selection policy is and usually in diving we just have the one comp that is Olympic trials and that's basically your selection so there's no points from this comp or points from that comp or anything like that so going in everybody's very clear you've got to come you know top two you've got to hit this score and and you're on the team basically Uh, and there's always seems to be at olympic trials you know things that happen and then there's appeals and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um which is normal i think too at olympic trials everybody wants to be there and there's always something that someone you know people are fighting to be on that team but at the end of the day it's pretty much perform at Olympic trials and hit the things that you have to do. Otherwise, you're not on the team. Mm-hmm. And do the, I guess on that, do the points translate? Like, can you compare a dive score from one meet to another? Or is there recognition of that there's going to be different subjectivity and different judges and that sort of thing? 
So basically, yeah, in that you have a score that's your final score, you know sort of what roughly what score is good for you or the scores that you have to hit or what your PB is. So generally that's how we measure things in diving is by a score. But at the same time, I don't compare, I never compare my performance with, you know, my performance at another comp. I don't usually compare my scores that much comp to comp because you do have to allow for that subjectivity mm-hmm. or, you know, big, sometimes in the moment the judges and everyone cheering, they'll throw out bigger scores or other comps they won't. And uh, you're sort of comparable to the other divers in that comp and you can, I guess, compare, you know, your scores a little bit, but I try not to because every comp is different. Mm. What about venue? I mean, I get the indoor versus outdoor diving venues, but are all venues fundamentally the same? The platforms look and feel the same? Uh, no difference in, you know, the way that you would approach a dive or are there small technical changes that you'd make depending upon venue? So ideally, basically, you, you train to do the same dive list and you should be able to go to every venue and do it the same. But, uh, yeah, life's not like that. And <laughs> some venues you'll just, you'll just feel more comfortable in and others you won't. Uh, generally outdoor is a little bit there's more going on there's more to think about Um, so they're usually a little bit more challenging to dive in but even indoor venues some of them I just feel really comfortable in immediately others with a few days behind like of training behind me then I start feeling better probably like in Tokyo like that my first few sessions there weren't great I didn't dislike the pool but I don't know why it just took me a few days to adjust maybe just not being used to different pools with COVID as well just being in the same pool for so long uh but then after a few days it just sort of got used to it and then there's other pools that you just I just never like when it, it doesn't matter how many years I go back there um but there can be differences in surfaces too the springboards are usually pretty similar but the platforms sometimes the surfaces are like this black like rough tech stuff and that's quite grippy but then other times particularly in Europe it's like this tile sort of stuff so hmm. it's it's grippy grippy tile but at the end of the day, it, it does feel a little bit slippery as well. So that can be a little bit challenging if you're not used to diving on that as well. And what about your selections of the dives you're going to do in a competition? Um, this is my ignorance of the sport, but do, do you need to submit them earlier? Can you change them right up to the last minute? You know, what, what's your, uh, I guess, do you go in with a plan that you're going to escalate through a series of dives and, and what flexibility do you have to change that basing on how you're feeling? Yeah, so your dive list doesn't tend to change too much. I've actually been doing the same dive list literally since I was pretty much 13. So it's similar, but but everybody in diving is pretty similar. So it's it's not that strategic in terms of the, there's only so many dives that you can do. We don't sort of make up dives like they do in other, you know, some of those winter sports and that kind of thing. I, I was thinking certain... of Blades of Glory, that, that <laughs> yeah, Will Ferrell ice skating movie. Things. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm waiting for the day that people start doing that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you don't really do that. So going to comp, you kind of already know. You know your dive list. You can choose what order you do and you sort of know what the other divers are doing. So there's not that much strategy that goes into it. I guess it's very individualized then in what order you want to do. At the end of the day, you have to compete all your dives. But if you think that, so for instance, for me, I always put my dodgy dive in round two. So I start strong, then get the dodgy one out of the way. (laughs) And then if I need to claw my way back, I have a few rounds (laughs) to sort of do that with dives that I'm more confident with. And then best dive last, that's what I always do. So I think a lot of people choose a similar thing, but some people they hope that the adrenaline will take them through and they put their dodgy dive last mm-hmm. and they hope that they're having a really good comp so that they'll just build that momentum into the the dodgy dive. But <laughs> I think what happens if you're having a bad comp yeah. and then you've left your bad one till last and it's all sort of hinging on that. Uh, so for me personally, that's not my 
um, way to do things by choice. But yeah, there's not too much you can do, I guess. And, and everyone knows what everyone's doing beforehand as well. A lot of people have the same list of dives their whole career. So there's not much, it's not, very, it's not as exciting as what it looks mm. on the outside. But what if you're having a really good comp and you nail your first dive and your dodgy dive? Would you ever think, oh, I'm so far ahead, I'm just going to reduce the degree of difficulty in some of my final efforts? Oh, no, sorry. So you do have to submit your dive sheet in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to do that 24 hours in advance. I forgot to uh, mention that. And then you do have a period like between rounds, so between like the prelim, the semi and the final, there's like a period that you can change your um, dive list before the next round, but you've, you've pretty much got to do that immediately after the competition. So once you're in the comp, you know what dives you're going to do. But um, even if you're doing well, um, you wouldn't probably reduce your DD in the comp anyway. You kind of go into a comp uh, knowing what your dive list is going to be and you basically commit to that. But if, if you do start off really well, even if you're like the back end of my list was always, you know, my strong dives, sometimes it almost makes you more nervous you start creating this good momentum of okay it's going well it's going well and you're like oh now i've got my trusty dives and then i don't know why your brain just starts working against you it's like oh you know what if i miss it kind of thing um which, which is something that i got a lot better at at the back end of my career but when i was younger that stuff used to flip me out just as much as if i dropped a dive so you'd never really change a dive you just go in with this commitment to diving your plan yeah, you wouldn't. You, you can't change your dive anyway in the comp, but most people wouldn't do it within the comp. What that one thing that people do do sometimes is if they have one dive that is a little bit more difficult, they'll just so they can make sure they progress to the final, they might put an easier dive in. Then um, this is only if the dive is like very very hard. Um, most people just have a normal list like me that I don't change. But if they have one dive that's really hard they'll do an easier version in the prelim and the semi to make sure they get to the final. And then in the final, they think I've got nothing to lose. I'll throw the hard one in then. Um, that's really much the only time you really see a lot of change in, in the dive list. Usually people won't change their lists at all at comp and you just get used to going to comps and doing the same dive lists all the time. So there's not much to change there. perhaps to an environment that we're a little bit more familiar with. Uh, Famously, (laughs) you have been on our screens and we've all been watching you on SAS Australia where you met Ben's brother, Dr. Dan Pronk, and our co-author. Why did you undertake SAS Australia? What motivated you to go and do that? Well, I got asked, I got put forward actually by Yana, who was Mm. on the previous season. Um, We're actually... And like she's your cousin cousin? related yeah. by marriage. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not blood relatives, but we um we're related by marriage. So I'm I, I know Yana and she messaged me and she this was in quarantine after Tokyo and she said, Oh, do you want to go on SAS? And to begin with, I was like, Oh no. <laughs> I just thought or automatically like I'll get injured or something will happen. But I think then just especially it's probably a good time being in quarantine and being able to just yeah, sit with my thoughts for a bit. And when I thought about it for a little bit, I was like, you know what, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I don't know if I'll get if I turn this down, I don't know if I'll get to do it again. And I just I don't know, I'm just curious. And I think just being the sort of person I am, I didn't want to miss an opportunity or like a chance to 
grow in a different way. I just thought this was going to be such a cool thing to really go out of my comfort zone, do something completely different and kind of find out a bit more about me as mm. me rather than just like me as a diver. Mm. Uh, so that was for me then when I changed how I thought about it, I was like, yeah, you know what, let's do it. Let's just go for it. Yeah, for the for the Army SAS, uh, candidates who express interest get given a 16-week training program that, that helps them physically prepare. Did you get a similar sort of thing once you'd indicated you were keen to participate in the show? Uh, they do send you a little training program, but it, I don't know, it didn't, I, I, like for instance, I had about four weeks to prepare and there was a lot of things that I <laughs> never do from diving and I was like, I don't think this like once a day thing is going to, which is what it was, it didn't look like that much. I was like, I'm going to need to do a lot more on top of that. So I sort of didn't follow it, but I looked at roughly what it wanted mm. me to do, the print, the chain print they sent, and I thought, okay, as long as I incorporate some of that in, I'm, but I'm also going to have to do like a lot of other things to get ready because I felt severely underprepared for it. So you're listed at 152 centimetres, five foot zero, with a weight at 46 kilograms. And there's plenty of parallels mm. with a good friend of ours, Monica Georgieva, who did SAS selection at around about the same weight, 54 kilos. And one thing that Mon says is that mass moves mass. Now, from an external perspective of SAS Australia, there is a lot of heavy carrying activities. How did you fare with that? How did you deal with that? Uh, it was pretty challenging, definitely. But one thing I wanted to do before going in was to bulk up a bit. So I probably went in closer to recording yeah, 52, in progress. 53 kilos. Uh, so that was that was a huge benefit, I think, because it does make a big difference to someone small like me, even to be you know around 48 or 49 around Tokyo to put on that extra weight uh, was definitely very helpful. It was still really hard, especially just um, carrying that bag and. Mm. everywhere it was quite heavy uh but it's something i that's one of the things i had to train for leading up to it as well and just get a bit more comfortable lifting more weight and for longer periods of time as well you can find out more about the topics of resilience stress and how to optimize your life in the resilience shield reach out via the website at www resilienceshield.com or do yourself a favour and just buy a copy of the book. You mentioned um, just previously that you, you wanted to learn a bit more about yourself as uh, sort of Melissa as opposed to, to a diver. Um, one of the things we often hear people talk about from the military SAS selection course is, is just how much they did learn about themselves and their their limits and their capabilities and their capacities. What sort of things did you learn from from your time on the show? I think one of the things I learned most was just how to back myself a little bit more and have a little bit more of that confidence and self-belief. I think I'm very confident in what I do as a diver and it's something that I've refined over a long period of time to stay at that top level and to continually improve. But uh, I know there's certain characteristics that I that cross over to other areas of my life, but I think just being so far out of my comfort zone and getting thrown into things, uh, I guess I just had to rely a lot on that. And, I, and I've and i discovered that, yeah, there's a lot more to me than just, you know, that diver or what has made that diver is actually, that's me. That's, you know, I possess those qualities. And if I'm, whether I'm a diver or not, I still have that. And I think that was a huge thing for me, particularly just having my whole identity pretty much wrapped up in diving, that that was a, that was a big thing I think that I can always take away now. 
Tim said before, grit equals passion plus perseverance, a, a quote from Angela Duckworth, who also says that grit is transferable, that grit developed in one certain area can or has been demonstrated to be able to, to move across to another. Did you find yourself drawing on uh, some of your experiences as a diver and some of the tough times and the, the resilience you've developed through diving during the, the um, SAS Australia? Definitely. Yeah. I think that one thing, and I've mentioned it before, was just, you know, changing my outlook on things and that's sort of when things went well for me in diving. And so I now, I think, try and approach things with a lot more optimism and positivity in general. And I really noticed that that was something that I was drawing from without even thinking about it. You know, it's quite easy to get in there and just think, oh, it's terrible and this Mm -hmm. is happening. And, And I saw that happening with some of the other recruits. But for me, I just try to enjoy those parts of it. And, you know, and that was all, that's all part of the experience. If mm. Without that, you, you don't get the same experience. You don't learn, you don't grow. So those things are necessary. It's you know, those times when you feel uncomfortable and it is easy at the time to just look at it negatively. But I tried to actually look at it as, as that, that was all what I signed up for, basically. That was the <laughs> mm. experience. And, and I kind of enjoyed doing all that. That was the stuff, you know, I can come home and sleep in a nice bed and do all that. I don't want to do that on SAS. I want the full experience. Yep. So, so, yeah, I think that I drew a lot on that kind of thing. Probably one thing I struggle with the most, um, and that's one thing like in diving, you're always so prepared for everything. And you, like I said, I've been doing those same dives now since I was 13, 14 years old. So it's not something, I don't go into a comp and worry about, you know, the dives. There's all just, you know, that mental side of things more. But in SAS, you can't prepare for anything. Mm. You don't know what's coming up. You just sort of get thrown into it. And, and I think that that anticipation was something that, I struggled a lot with and it's something that I got a bit of advice from recruits from previous seasons and no one actually really mentioned that too much and so I think that's why it's sort of they mentioned everything else and I felt like I had sort of a good idea of how things might be from things that they told me but that was something that wasn't mentioned and so I personally I think just maybe my personality as well uh, really struggled with that and just those car rides are sometimes two and a half three hours long and I would just sit there and think what is it going to be what is it going to be and and I, and I had to kind of catch myself out on that and be like, right now you're seeing the mindfulness. You're sitting here. You're not there. You can't do anything about it. So stop wasting the energy. Stop stressing and just get on with it when you get there. You, you've mentioned that a couple of times. We love that. And we talk a lot about the stoic principles of, of focus on what you can control and, and try and let go of what you can't. And that seems something that you've, you've mentioned as a, a technique you've used throughout um, speaking of transferability, I was a little disappointed to see that you you didn't sort of take the opportunity to do a, a pike and three turns out of a helicopter or off the, the skid of a, <laughs> uh, of a helo. Or into the ice bath. <laughs> or into the ice bath. <laughs> oh, I barely got into the ice bath. <laughs> maybe I should have Maybe I should have done, done a bit of that. That would have made it a bit better probably. What was the most unpleasant thing? Oh, for me, definitely anything underwater and... There's, there's sort of being in water and swimming and then there's drowning and that's a whole separate yeah. thing. And that for me was really scary. Even just from day one, that, you know, the plane um, flipping over and you had to get out, that was scary for me. I didn't know where I was. I was really disorientated and then I didn't get, I got pulled out by the TS. And then the second day then to do the beehive and then again, just feeling like you were drowning, that was really scary for me. And I guess just feeling like, I think like as an athlete, I, whenever I put my mind to something, I know I can sort of do it. But when I swim, no matter how much I tell myself, just move, swim. When when I feel like I'm doing something, but my, I'm not going anywhere, <laughs> I'm just in the water struggling. That for me is like the ultimate thing that I that I hate. So 
I think that they were definitely the water tasks were the hardest things for me for sure. And the CS gas? Sorry? The tear gas? The tear gas. Oh, look, it was, it was a bit <laughs> dramatic, but I didn't actually, it wasn't that bad actually. I think, to be honest, I think that that was just a combination of, um, you know, one, the tear gas, but also just a lot of fatigue. By yeah, that yeah. stage of the course, I was really, and like I said, we don't do any cardio in diving. So I had about four weeks to try and get fit, but I was just trying to keep up. I knew going in, in with the group, I was definitely one of the slowest, but I was determined to not get told that I was the one letting the team down on team tasks. So I did everything I could to sort of stay in it and help the team out. And it just gassed me. And then I think it was just day in, day out of doing that. And then that morning going to the tear gas, I just didn't feel good. I just was <laughs> like, oh, I've got nothing left in the tank. I already felt a bit lightheaded. Mm. Um, and I think it was just that <laughs> that last thing that got me. And then took a bit of a dive into the dirt. <laughs> Lucky you had Dr. Dan Pronk there. <laughs> I know, super so lucky. <laughs> I think he, he was stoked that he got to, to dash onto camera for a second. <laughs> you, you made his day. What, what about the relationship with the, the other recruits? So clearly in the military SAS course, um, you're not competing against the person next to you. There's a real incentive to, to get people through. And, and you know, if, if everyone is at the standard, the, the unit will select everyone. So it's not an attrition type thing, but there's an element of competition in a reality show. Um, how did that play in terms of your relationship with the other recruits? Honestly, I didn't ever really feel like I was in competition with the other recruits and I didn't really feel like they thought that either. We definitely um, were a, a unit, we were a team, we helped each other a lot and I think that that's sort of unfortunately one of the things that didn't get shown that much on TV. It really, they did everything they could to make it look like we were sort of split and divided and and that we weren't working together. But honestly, we wouldn't have been able to get through without working together. Like you rely on each other so much, literally in everything every day, that you, you can't do it without without each other. So we really did help each other with everything and we were always there for each other. And that was one of the things I loved the most about experience. And I guess the show is produced, so we see what the producers want us to see. But when it, when you turn your attention to the instructors, how supportive were they? I mean, the television just shows them ranting, raving and yelling at people. Was it more than just that? Yeah, definitely. A lot of the times they, they're usually very quite intense. So uh, they, they're usually yelling. But yeah. a lot of the times, most of the times for me personally, when I was sort of being not yelled at, but when they were yelling towards me, it was actually very encouraging and it was positive. And, and they really want you to get the best out of yourself. There's, they're there for you. They want to help you and they do everything they can for you to get what you need to out of the course, to, you know, challenge yourself, to push yourself. And, 
uh, and that kind of thing. And I actually really liked that part of it, you know, especially as someone who's been in sport for a long time, you know, the relationship I have with my coach now, he's quite relaxed and that works really well for me. But I do sometimes miss the days when I was younger when the coach would be really pushy and push you and, and you sort of don't have to worry about that. Whereas now I rely a lot more on that self-motivation, which as I mentioned, I'm lucky enough to have, but it's not always easy. You've got to really keep yourself accountable. So having someone sort of yell at you and tell you to go, like when they say go, you, your body, you you might have even thought about it yet and your body just goes, um, which is kind of good. So, yeah, I actually really liked that part of it. I liked just being told what to do and then just focusing more on just executing and doing it. And it was kind of nice. And I thought, you know, how good is it when you don't overthink things, when you just get in and do it, when you're told to do it and, mm. and, and, you, and you do it, your body does it. It's actually interesting. Um, military selection courses have evolved and, and tried different things, and uh, most modern courses have gone away from that sort of yelling and screaming type thing because it does provide, uh, I guess, structure. It provides motivation to some people. It provides um, sort of feedback. And uh, what um, a lot of courses have found is that the absence, so just complete silence, no good, no bad, no otherwise, um, actually messes with people's head a lot more. And it's interesting, uh, probably not dissimilar to, to what you're reflecting on then, that, that even the yelling can be a positive uh, motivator. Yeah, definitely. I've had coaches actually in the past who have done that, like the silent treatment. And I agree, I, I always really struggle with that. And it's that like not knowing and, and you just, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. It does play tricks on your mind a bit. And, and there is a bit of an element to that in the course as well. Like you never really know how you're doing they don't really ever give you that much feedback it's sort of just like at the time they're in your face they're pushing you but then you, like some of the things I had no idea if I'd passed or mm. not and then watching on tv I was like oh I actually did all right <laughs> I thought I'd <laughs> completely messed that up like and you, you just don't know so they they do a bit of both which they're yeah, very clever like that how intense are the interrogations the sessions of tactical questioning where it's just you and two of the instructors uh, mine personally wasn't too bad. I'm not that controversial. I don't really have any <laughs> skeletons in the closet or anything. They didn't even show mine on TV. That's <laughs> how like, non-interesting it was. So for me, I didn't I didn't mind that. It was a good, a good chance, though, to, I guess, that's the only chance really that you have to interact with the DS uh, that's not, you know, on a task or not them sort of pushing you to do something. That's the only time you really sort of get to know them, I guess. So I think that that is a good opportunity for them to get a little bit more of an insight into what makes you tick and, mm. and they're very intelligent, the questions they ask. It's it's like, wow, they they really notice things about us all when we're on these tasks and that was kind of cool, I think. And I guess, yeah, for me, just another chance to, to learn from them a bit. I was just going to say, Melissa, diving seems to have given you so much and, and clearly you've, you've, you've worked so hard at it, but, you know, the, the amazing opportunities and the incredible incredible things you've done representing our country, medals at Olympics, medal at Commonwealth Games, opportunities like SAS Australia. Do you feel, though, that you've you've missed um, out on certain things, you know, having been involved at such a high level for with diving for, for such a long time and over that, that sort of period of your, your sort of teenage years and early 20s? Oh, I actually don't. There's, there's definitely things that I missed out on. There's things, you know, school education has always been a very <laughs> challenging thing for me to keep up with when I was younger. I was traveling so much when I was from the age of 13. School was really hard. I didn't actually finish school. I then was doing uni. Um, you know, I did open universities to get into uni and then I was doing that by distance. So 
from, like education for me has always been one of those things that it's like you know I'll I'll do it I'll do it yeah, kind of I'll thing but yeah. um, I'll get to it but yeah and then I think with then with that is also that social aspect of not you know going not doing you know all the the formal and all that stuff so having friends and doing all that sort of thing um, but to be honest I spent my childhood diving and that was my choice I it was worth it for me to go to the Olympics and to be able to go to the Olympics four times and do all the other amazing things I've done to meet the people I've met the places I've traveled to the opportunities I've had for me that has 100% been worth it and I created the life that I wanted myself and that life is looks different to a lot of people that I went to school with uh, and some of them found that hard to understand but I wouldn't change a minute of it um, and I think it yeah definitely it's it's changed like it's that's who I am but also that sort of set the course for whatever I'll you know what I'll do after diving and the person that I'll be and that's different to most and I don't really I don't care <laughs> And your private life does seem very private, Mel. And I don't want to—I want to respect that. But the when you're not diving or training for diving, what do you do for you? Uh, I actually like don't spend a lot of time just on hobbies or downtime. I—I I guess I just have always been wrapped up, especially in the last few years, with having something ready for after diving and having my career ready so that. I can make that transition period easier for myself whenever I do decide to retire. So I just sort of have thrown myself into that. But uh, for me, I guess it doesn't always feel like work. Sometimes it is work, but sometimes it's, you know, socialising and networking with people. And um, and I, I don't know, I enjoy working hard and, and doing things that are associated with my businesses. And for me, because I think diving is so, like, scheduled and regimented and then the business side of things is always different, I think that just always makes it exciting for me and I'm always doing something different and no week of mine looks the same. So even though I don't spend a lot of time just chilling out and relaxing, it's always it's exciting for me because every week is different other than my training, which is the same. Everything else I do in my life, um, it changes week to week and it's it's kind of fun. I kind of enjoy it. It's awesome. Melissa, we like to ask our guests what their power song is. Yes. So really interested, you're about to do your second dodgy dive, you've <laughs> put down your Sudoku, you're getting yourself fired up. What's the song that goes into your your, your earphones to, to get you in the zone? <laughs> I'll give you the boring answer. I don't actually have one. I actually, <laughs> in comp, because I get so nervous, I have to basically do everything I can to sort of bring my heart rate down. So I don't really have like a go-to song. I basically just try and do everything I do like normally in life. I do in comp. So if I don't think about what I'm listening to and just put anything on in my day-to-day life, I'll do exactly the same in comp and just be like, don't change it. Don't now find some song that's going to be the magic <laughs> thing. Um, so, yeah, I don't have one, but I generally listen to music that I, yeah, you can kind of just bop along to and you don't, it's not particularly like, crazy or anything like that. I, I was really hoping for Van Halen's jump. I do like I do like old music. I'm pretty sure like the players I played in comp is all literally from the eighties. <laughs> was it Tom Petty that, that wrote Freeform? Freeform. Freeform. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not I'm not actually. sure I'm not sure how we can include your selection on the Unforgiving Sixty playlist on Spotify, Melissa. Maybe we'll maybe we'll put something that's more contemporary that you're listening to at the moment. What are you listening to at the moment in terms of music? Oh, literally, I don't know anything. Uh, I just have my brother's post at the moment. It's either like K-pop or rap, 90s rap. I don't know. The music you play in the gym, basically. 
Yeah, no, I'll have a thing. I'll give you guys a song. Awesome, brilliant. That <laughs> yeah, that, that's, your, that's your homework for us. <laughs> well, Melissa, you've been you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you very much for your time. How do people find out a bit more about Melissa Wu? Well, I'm on social media, so I am Melissa Page Wu on Instagram. I'm also on TikTok, LinkedIn. Uh, if you search my name, uh, yeah, that's basically the easiest way to find me. Now, we were told we had to have a TikTok account. What do you do on TikTok that you don't do on Instagram? How do those accounts differ? Honestly, I haven't been on TikTok for a while. I made the account during Tokyo at the Olympics and I was it was kind of good. It was a good distraction for me to kind of just get on that and do fun things. And since getting back, I have I've barely been on it actually, <laughs> but it's something I want to do. But it, it's good. It's basically, it's more a lot more videos than Instagram. You'll see a lot of TikTok videos popping up on Instagram now anyway. Mm. And it's kind of fun. It's just there's trends and you just sort of watch things and it's a bit more lighthearted, I think, and... Yeah, just a good distraction from life, really. Maybe Tim could open the Unforgiving 60 TikTok account with his dive list, the the bomb, the horsey, and <laughs> yeah, the coffin. Exactly. Or, it won't be pretty. Yeah. It won't be pretty. Yeah. And I'm not sure I'm going to do them from the 10-metre platform either. That seems a bit too high. <laughs> you can give us a demo of your tuck as well, Ben. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but diving I, version I don't of think the I can get past 90 degrees. <laughs> I think it, it's, it's going to be pretty More uh, an pretty L-sit. Awkward. Yep. If you're lucky. Yep. <laughs> well, Mel, thanks. Thanks again. Thanks for being on the Unforgiving 60 podcast. Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. In fact, I did, I did forget to ask you, um, what are the plans for Com Games 2022? Uh, so basically, we I'm training at the moment. I'm just going to do synchro this year. So I'm basically I've been like I mentioned doing a bit of travel um, interstate for for that, and then we'll have trials in early June in Melbourne. For, basically, that's trials for World Championships and Commonwealth Games. Mm. So fingers crossed, I qualify for the team. <laughs> um, if not, we'll yeah just reassess and see where we're at. But that's the big goal this year: is Com Games, pretty much. Body's feeling fit and healthy. Uh, it's it's good other than just the, the back injury from SAS still, uh, which is a bit frustrating. But yeah, it's manageable and, and I'm definitely making progress forward, which is good. So I'm definitely happy about that. Any progress is, is good. So we'll keep on that trajectory, hopefully. We can't wait to see you there. Awesome. Hey, thanks. Yeah, thanks. thanks, Mel. Really excellent to have a chat. Thanks so much, guys. Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence and would love your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, let us know. You can get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com.
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. Until next time, we wish you luck in filling your Unforgiving 60s with some quality distance run. Yeah.